we get started with our lesson, it is so exciting that that song was sung, how the Holy Spirit has already moved through this morning so beautifully. I'm going to teach a story of the foreshadowing of the greatest redemption story, and it's the story we walk in every day, that we are redeemed. I just was beside myself with emotion singing that song this morning. But before we do that, I want us to go into family prayer time. And here's what I mean by that. My phone has been ringing off, well, I would say off the hook, we don't do that anymore, but blowing up this week with prayer needs of things that are just, uh, some of them very sad, but some of them just very triumphant. And I want us to spend some time in prayer. And here's what I'm saying. I want us to just lift up some names and you can just say them out loud at home. Can you hear okay? Okay. Speak them out loud at home. Speak them out loud in this room. I'm going to start with some names that I want to lift up. You speak up some names, and then I'll just close this down in prayer, and then we'll get into our lesson. But when we're together, unified together, and we're lifting our, our praises and our petitions and our pleas up to the Lord, He hears us. He hears that united front. It's different than when we just pray alone. So let's give a united front this morning. So here's the way I want to lift up today. I want to lift up Marsha Cunningham. I got an early call this morning from her mother. And um, thank you. Oh, I needed that. And Marsha is responding miraculously to some new things that they're doing. And that heart is working. That is a miracle. That is a miracle. And I want you to pray for Marcia. I want to lift up Marcia and Michael and the family, the daughters and the family and their husbands and the grandchildren. I also want to pray over uh, Graham Burcham's mother and Alice's brother. I want us to lift up Doug and Mar Margaret Buttry today. I understand that they're sick. Father, there's many others that you have, so speak those names out right now at home, and I will continue to speak out names here. Father God, I want you to lift up um, Ellen and Annie Singer. Father, I want you to lift up um, the leadership of this church. Speak some out. Speak them out. Just speak them out loud. Father, I thank you for this praise team this morning. Thank you. I, I just want us to pray over Bobby so much. What a loss. She is just um, in trauma right now of losing her husband and the children and their loss of a father. Father, be with them. Speak him out. Thank you. Thank you. Speak him out. Father, you hear us. Everybody that's at home, speak those names out. Let your children speak those names out. Lift them up to the throne room. They're all saved in that golden bowl. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the Katinas that have brought so much to us over these last few weeks. And I'm sorry we had to cancel that, but thank you for them and their families and their children and grandchildren. Father, thank you for listening to our prayers. In Jesus' name, we say thank you. Amen. Amen. Continue to just speak names out at home. Just speak them out. We Sometimes we think prayer is a, a way that we do um, fancy speaking. Just speak out a name and just lift it up and let him hear you. Well, today I'm going to take my lesson from um, Exodus 15. So if you want to turn to your Bible to Exodus 15. But first of all, I want you to know that um, 
I identify with this story of Moses so well because when they came to talk to me and say, would you speak? It was really supposed to be next week and then they moved it up a week and both times I'm in a panic and I think, wow, I'm just like Moses. I don't, I don't have the right words. I don't have the right thoughts. I don't know how to put it in words correctly. And I just go in this little panic and I think I'm just like Moses. But here's the deal. I don't come to you today with a lot of Bible degrees. I have none. I'm not ordained in anything that would be um, worthy of being here in this position. But here's how I come today. I come as a witness. I witness what I have seen in my life. I witness what I've heard from his word, the inspired word of God. I witness what he's done in this church. And I come to say, praise you, Jesus. So if there's anything that's a nugget today that you can hang on to, it's because I bring that to you as a witness. It was several years, well, let me tell you what the assignment was. They said, pick a life verse or pick a life lesson that you have that you've hung on to. So the assignment was easy for me to think about because I thought of this uh, lesson right away. I was very, very young. It was many, many years ago, and I was starting my profession, and I had just opened up my first school. I didn't know anything about what I was doing. I was so ill-equipped, and I went off to my first teacher conference, and I'm telling you, somebody that knew I was in that audience prepared this lesson for me. And I heard this lesson then, and I've taught it and used it and thought about it and meditated over and over and over again. It has brought life to me so many times, so hopefully it'll bring life to you today because it's so pertinent to what we're going through as a culture, as um, with the COVID, as a nation, as a church, as a home. It is so pertinent to what we're doing today. So here we go. Let me bring you some history. Moses is going to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt. How the Israelites got down into Egypt is kind of an interesting story to begin with because remember, God had made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was up in um, the land of Canaan, had had his children there, had a family there, but there was a famine. And so he took his family down to Egypt where there was food and provision, and Joseph, his son, had already preceded him under horrific uh, circumstances, but he was there, and he located this family in the land of Goshen. The land of Goshen was the end of it all. It was the best of the best, and they had provision there because of Joseph's position in the government. That was about 70 people. 400 years have passed, and now they number hundreds of thousands. One of my study Bibles said about 2 million. From 70 people, 400 years, now to about 200, 2 million people, and God has called Moses to lead them out of Egypt. And he said, I don't want anything to do with this. But he'd been leading sheep all throughout that desert for 40 years. Who better? He had been raised in Egypt as a prince for 40 years. Who better? And here he is now, 80 years old, and he's called to lead the people out. Now, this journey is going to be so interesting because there's really one objective. 
that I see in every one of the Moses stories. God is trying to say, trust me. Just trust me. I'm your provision. I'm your protection. I'm your guidance. I'm your God. You see, they had lived in Egypt for 400 years, and when they were kind of sequestered away in the land of Goshen, it would be kind of easy to keep your own little culture going. But now there are hundreds of thousands of people, and they're serving the Egyptians every day. Why wouldn't they kind of take on the culture of where they are? And what's so interesting about Egypt is they didn't have one God. They had many gods, many gods. When about a handful of years ago, Carl took me to Oxford, England. I've always dreamed to go, and he took me. And one afternoon, we went to the Ashmolean Museum, and it's the Museum of Art and Archaeology. We walk up the steps, and in front of me is Egypt on display. Out of this time period, there was display case after display case after display case on display for me to see the gods of Egypt. They had renderings and artifacts that told me they had a god for everything. And here, our creator God is going to bring these people out of this culture and say, I'm your provision. I'm your protection. I'm going to take care of you. It's not what you have been thinking from the land of from Egypt. And he started that with the plagues. Those ten plagues were attack on, each, on ten different gods. But finally, it's, he could have had plagues forever to get a plague for all of those gods. But finally, he gets them out, and he says, now I want to show you who I am. I want to, before I get into the beginning of this story, I want to look at the end of Moses' leadership. At the very end of, lead, of Moses' leadership, he sings a song over the people. And he's singing a song of history. And he's up on, he gets to go up on Mount Nebo to look into the promised land because he doesn't get to go. And in that song of history, he gives us a couple of clues of who God was for these people to teach them he is the God. And this is the way I try to read any time that I read a, star, a story out of the Bible. What is the character and nature of God? And what is the character and nature of man? What is he trying to show me in my character? What is he trying to show me about himself and his character? And so I'm going to have you put Deuteronomy 32 up there. And I, um, I will read it from um, the New International Version. And this is Moses now singing this song. And this is just a piece of the song. And he says, in a desert land he found him in a barren and howling waste. And he's talking about his people, the Israelites. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. The apple of your eye is the pupil of your eye. If ever you've had something coming towards your face, what is the first thing you do? You protect, don't you? You protect your eye. That pupil of your eye is the first place you want to protect. 
What does that tell you about the character and nature of God? Moses is telling you at the end of the story, that's how God treated you. And then it goes on to say, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. Now, what is he saying? One is Moses singing over the people. He stirs up its nest. Some of you know a lot about eagles. I used to go to a retreat center in Colorado Springs called Glen Airy, and I used to watch the eagles fly from their nests. And their nests are very large. They're um, maybe five, six, seven feet across. And they're, because they're large birds of prey, they have to be very sturdy. So they make their nests out of sticks and large twigs. It's, it wouldn't be just a little bit of straw. They're heavy pieces of, of um, support for these large nests. But because they're kind of prickly and um, not comfortable, then what they do is they line their nest with down and fur and soft straw and they make this nest comfortable. And then they lay their eggs and raise their eaglets. When it's time though for them to teach that eaglet to fly, they do what's called stirring up the nest. And they take all that down and all that fur and all that soft straw out of that prickly nest discard it away, and they make the home uncomfortable, stirring up the nest. Now it's time to teach the eaglet to fly. So what the eagle will do is nudge that eaglet to the edge of the nest and push it out. And if the eaglet doesn't get it figured out that he needs to spread his wings and catch the wind current, the parent will swoop down scoop that eaglet up on its pinions, on its wings, carry it back up to a nest, and dump it back up into the nest again. And repeat the process, nudging the eagle to the edge, pushing the eaglet out. If he doesn't catch the wind, again, he catches the eaglet on its pinions and puts it back in the nest. Now, scientists who study this and watch this have never found an eaglet dashed on the rocks below. An eagle knows. And finally then, the eaglet learns, if I just spread my wings, I can soar. And the eagle knows this eaglet has got to be what they've been created to be. They need to soar above the treetops. They need to soar through these mountains. They're not met for that nest. Well, remember when God had the people in Goshen, they're numbering about hundreds of thousands of people, he has to stir up their nest. And one of the ways he stirs up the nest is he said, he uses Pharaoh to help them stir up the nest is what he does. Pharaoh says, don't give them any straw. They can go gather their own straw. Make those bricks and build my cities. Don't give them straw. They are lazy. They've been asking to go out into the countryside to worship. Don't give them any straw. Can you see how that nest is being stirred up? All that comfort is being taken away? Because he's wanting them to get ready to be out of that nest. And he's going to take them back to their promised land. Now, he also uses the plagues to stir up their nest, too. And he sees their gods being challenged. 
there's many ways that God stirs up our nest every day because he said, you're not doing really what you're created to do, and it's time to stir up that nest. So we'll get into that a little bit further. But here's what I want you to look at. In Exodus 15 is where the base of the story is going to happen. The Israelites have just crossed the Red Sea. Moses put his staff over the waters, and the waters parted. And they've been being directed by a cloud, a pillar of cloud, and so they know the direction they're going, and then that cloud also protects them. Now, this is important to understand about the cloud of, of by day and the pillar by night, because we're going to go in, in a direction here with that for just a minute. But what's happened is they've just crossed that sea, and they are elated. It is Triumph City all over the place. And in, ver in chapter 15, Moses starts singing. Now, this is the beginning of his ministry. I was just telling you a song he sang at the end. This is at the beginning of his leadership here with the people. And it says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, and it goes on and on. I'll just read pieces and parts of it. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength, my song. He has given me victory. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. That's interesting that they say my Father's God, because for 400 years, we don't know how they knew much about their God. Nothing's recorded for us. But somehow in this song, it's revealed, they kept an oral tradition going about my Father's God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's stories, somehow they must have been continuing to be repeated. But they are elated. The words that they're talking about here, the triumph, the victory they feel is just fabulous. Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, smashes the enemy. It goes on. The surging waters stood straight like a wall. In the heart of the sea, the deep waters became hard. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And it goes on and on. And then... Moses and Aaron's sister joins in the act as well, Miriam, and she also sings, Sing to the Lord, for he is triumphant, glorious, he's triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. They couldn't be more excited about this God, the God of the, the creator God, who allowed them to escape Egypt, allowed all those pursuing Egyptians to die and be drowned in the water, and off they were going. They were so excited. But they leave from triumph. God leads them with a pillar. They leave from triumph to trouble. This is where we're going to start in verse 22. So if you want to put that up. Chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea, and they moved out into the desert of Shur. They traveled in this desert for three days without finding any water. When they came to the um, oasis of Merah, the water was too bitter to drink. So they called the place Merah, which means bitter. From triumph to trouble. Their longing cannot be met. They need water, and it's bitter. 
Now, I don't know if any of you have been in that kind of a situation where things were looking good, but I think we've just experienced and are going through that experience a little bit, and we've all been led to a period of trouble. And this is where the redemption story, and some of this is actually a foreshadowing of the greatest redemption story that we're part of today. It's interesting, though, how the people reacted. Verse 24, then the people complained and turned against Moses. What are, you, what are we going to drink, they demanded. Now, they're three days in the journey. They've forgotten the triumph three days ago, and they're complaining. Now, does that tell you anything about our own character and nature? Where's the first place we usually go? We complain, don't we? Moses makes it very clear in Exodus 16, he repeats it four times. You're not complaining against me. You're complaining against the Lord. Your complaining is not affecting me. You're complaining against the Lord. Now that's a huge, what is the, my character and nature lesson for me? Because the first thing I want to do is complain about my husband, complain about my children, complain about my church, complain about my government, complain, complain, complain. And he said, wait just a minute. You're not complaining against those things. You're complaining against me. Let's get that changed, Nancy. And he works on me all the time on that. I think Carl will attest to that. But here's what happens. They're in this time of trouble, and God wants to teach them something. He wants to teach them, but he's going to test them first. Now, the interesting part about moving from triumph to trouble to, to testing is that when I was a school teacher, I would teach and teach and teach and teach, and then I would test. And then if they didn't do well on the test, I would teach it some more, and we would go back and repeat the test. God just doing the opposite here. He's testing so he can teach. And he often will do that in our own lives. He will test so he can teach. But just like me going back and teaching again so I can be tested again, he does that as well, doesn't he? He just keeps being so long-suffering, so patient with us. But here's what he's going to do. Moses cried out to the Lord for help, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Moses threw it into the water, and this made the water good to drink. Something's changed. From this bitterness to a blessing, the water is good. Here's a question, though. In my translation I'm using today, it says a piece of wood. But most translations will use the word a tree. E-T-Z is the word, a tree. And now I don't know why some of the translations have been casual with that. I don't understand that language stuff. But I do know that the E-T-Z word that they've translated there is tree. And it's also repeated in Acts when Paul is telling us about Jesus hanging on a tree. Now, why do you think God had Moses throw a tree into the water? I've been in that desert. He could have easily picked up a rock, right? There's rocks everywhere and thrown that in the water. Or he could have easily put his staff over that water and 
done something that would change that water from the power of God. But he said, throw a tree. Well, people who study typology and foreshadowing in the, in the word of God say that this is pointing to the Messiah. And you know, I've heard that all my life. The Old Testament over and over and over again is repeating stories that will be fulfilled in the life of Christ. I'm wondering if this is one of them. Hanging on a tree, a tree turned that water from bitter to living water. You know, there's two stories in the New Testament that John records for us with the Messiah actually claiming to be living water. The first one is when the woman at the, Samar at the well, the Samaritan woman came, and he revealed himself for the very, very first time as the Messiah, and he uses that topic about being living water. Another time is recorded, that's in John 4, another one is in John 7, when it's a high feast day, and they're all down in Jerusalem, and it's the last day of the feast day, and their feast days would last seven days, so it's the seventh day, and they're talking about pouring the water over the altar, and he makes this claim that he's the living water. This incenses the leaders. They're incensed. How dare he? And so sure enough, they set a trap, and the trap is the adulterous woman. And you know that story as well of how he had to make sure she was shown and he was protected. But living water, I'm wondering if this isn't a foreshadowing of Jesus being living water, but they had the water they needed. So he left him, he took him from triumph to trouble to testing, and now he's gonna show them what he's, what he's trying to teach them. It was there at Merah that the Lord set before them the following decree as a standard to test their faithfulness to him. He said, if you'll listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commands and keeping all his decrees, then I will not make you suffer any of the diseases I sent on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. The diseases here probably is referencing more of punishment for sin. But what he's saying is, be obedient. Your obedience is your protection. I have the best in mind for you. Remember, you're the apple of my eye. I stir up the nest to teach you something new, but you're still the apple of my eye. David also repeats those two in a psalm. I think it's in Psalm um, 17 about the apple of the eye and also the pinions, the wings of the, of the eagle. But he says, remember, that's who, that's who I am. But sometimes these lessons are really tough to learn. Now, let's see how he finishes the story. After leaving Merah, the Israelites traveled onto the oasis of Elam, where they found 12 springs and 70 palm trees. They camped there beside the water. Now, why didn't God lead them to Elam in the first place? It was only about six miles difference in travel time. He could have easily had that cloud and that pillar of fire and that pillar of cloud lead them to Elam first. But he said, no, I've got to teach you something. We've got to 
get you soaring. We've got to push you out of the nest and let you soar a while so you can see what's really why you're created the way you're created. But also, I think he wants to teach him a lesson of who he is because the confusion had to be so great as to who this real God, this one God, was. So how does that fit into our anxieties today? How does that fit into what we're going through today? There's still times of triumph, aren't there? There's still times of trouble. There's still times of testing and teaching. There's still times of stirring up the nest. I still complain. But I need to take my complaints to the one who wants to hear about it. He's the one who makes a difference. And you know, just like this one resolved where they ended up at Elam, where there was a spring for every tribe, 12 tribes of Israel coming down into the Elam must have been glorious to see those 12 springs, those, the oasis of that area. It must have been just fabulous. Well, my triumphs not, may not look like that. My triumphs may be very, what maybe the world would say, very insignificant, but they're huge. My triumph is I get to participate in the redemption story every day, no matter what's going on around me. I have been chosen by him to be part of that redemption story. And you have too. I think that part of it is this continual invitation to come back to him and know who he is, I think is one of the greatest triumphs we have. And we need to rede maybe redefine what a triumph looks like because there's gonna be from triumph to trouble to testing to teaching back to triumph. But I have to often look for triumph, especially during what we're going through now. I have to see the triumphs. One of the triumphs I saw today is he hears prayer. Last night I was crying on the phone with Nancy Clemens because her daughter is the one who just received a heart and something wasn't functioning properly in her body. I wake up this morning to an early morning call and Nancy says, our prayers have been answered. That is a triumph. We need to watch for the triumphs. I wanna read one more song that wasn't sung by Moses, but it was actually sung by one of our prophets, Habakkuk. If you wanna turn there, it's at the very, very end of the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk 3. And he sings this song. He is so um, grieving over the, the nation, the kingdom of Israel, and particularly Judah. And he is knowing that they're gonna be taken into captivity and it's just breaking his heart because he knows it could be so different. And it's exactly what happened that Moses was teaching at the waters of Merah. He said, obey my decrees and you will be good. You will be good, obey my decrees. But they left their God and they started following other gods. And so Habakkuk is just mournful over this. But here's how he ends his story. And he's singing this again. He says, even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes in the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, 
even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation, the sovereign God of my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. Even though, even though, my hope is in that, and the vision I have of what that foot of the deer that can climb the high places. I used to live in Colorado for years, and I'd see those mountain goats, and they would climb out on the craziest cliffs. I think that's what he's showing, the deer that, is, that has the feet that can climb in those heights. That's what he's equipped us to do. The high places are where he, the images, that's where he dwells. I have an ability to commune with him. I have an ability to be present with him. I have this ability to appreciate his presence. That's the greatest triumph, even though I live in triumph. Let me pray that over you. And what I want to do is I want to pray all the words that are the definition for the word shalom. You know, when Jesus came into the upper room the day he rose from the dead and the Disciples were all hunkered down, and they were scared. All their hopes had been dashed. They had certainly been through a time of testing, and all their hopes had been dashed. And Jesus walks into the room, and he says, Shalom. We've translated it, peace be with you. But peace is only one word that shalom means. He uses the word shalom. So let me pray this over you, and I'm going to use all the words that would shalom could imply. Father God, thank you, thank you that you want us to have shalom. That is your greatest triumph, is that we can live a life of shalom with you. Peace, safety, rest, prosperity, wholeness welfare, completion, fullness, soundness, well-being, harmony, flourishing, delight, communion with you. Father, thank you for shalom in our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray this prayer and thank you.